I have a certain weekend that I look forward to every single year. Uh, it's what myself and three of my friends call Rivalry Weekend. We started a few years back going to a rivalry college football game. And we have been able to go to some of the most historic gridiron battles uh, in college football. We've been to Michigan, Ohio State. Uh, it was absolutely the coldest that I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, we went to Army-Navy last year. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we've been to Alabama and Auburn. We watched Auburn upset Alabama a few years back, and we actually got to go down on the field. It was crazy. That was a lot of fun. We've been to USC-Notre Dame. Anytime you get to see USC lose, it's a good day. So um, that was a lot of fun. But every year... We've gone to these games. We've gone to six games so far. We wear the home colors. We cheer for the home team. And uh, so far, we're four and two in games. The home team went, has won four times. Uh, the home team's lost twice. However, I am stuck with a major dilemma this year. Because <clears throat> in picking a game, uh, one, of our, one of the people in our group is a diehard Nebraska Bug Eaters fan, uh, or Corn Huskers, however you want to call them, but they are a huge fan. And this year, we are going to uh, one of their longtime rivals. Uh, they are playing third game of the season. They're playing my favorite team, the Oklahoma Sooners. So therefore, I am stuck with a dilemma, because I will not be cheering for the home team this year. I will not be wearing uh, that other color of red this year. And it's not because I want to buck the system. It's not because I don't love my best friend who's a diehard Nebraska fan. Uh, but it's because they are playing my team. And as they are playing my team, you almost feel dirty to put on the opposing team's colors. It's almost like one time when some friends took me to my very first Texas Longhorns game. They were playing the Oklahoma State Cowboys. Both ugly colors of orange. And I couldn't wear either one. So if you can see in the picture, I'm wearing a black shirt with green stripes. My wife is wearing blue because she graduated from uh, Texas Tech. And she could not put on those uh, lovely orange colors. It's not that I don't dislike Texas. It's just that it felt weird. Does that make sense to anyone? It just felt strange. You can see Isaiah. This is how he felt about the game. Um, and just so if anyone is wondering, Oklahoma State did win that game. So, why do I tell you that as we start tonight? If you are reading along with us throughout the New Testament, we've come to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul notes in Ephesians... In Ephesians chapter 6, 21 and 22, that he wants his readers to understand that he's in prison. Wants, him to, wants them to understand that he's okay there. And he wants them to be an encouragement to them even though he is in prison. He wanted this letter to be uh, an encouragement not only to the people of Ephesus. He wanted this to be an encouragement for them so that they can be an encouragement to other people in the surrounding areas. And ultimately... So that it can be an encouragement to us today. Here's a picture of where Ephesus is. It's, uh, it was located in Asia, which is modern day Turkey. And in this region, the people were very 
fascinated with magic. If you're reading through Ephesians this week, you're going to get a hint of that as you read through it. Very fascinated with magic. They're very fascinated with the occult. Um, You can see that in Acts 19.19 as well. So Paul will address some of these things throughout the book of Ephesians. As Paul is addressing the people of Ephesus, he breaks the letter down into two parts. And the first three chapters, he's going to um, highlight doctrine. And so as you read the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, it talks about who we are in Christ. It talks about what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Fundamental truths for our beliefs. Fundamental truths that we need to understand in our lives. It's where we get the verse Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, what? Walk in them. We kind of talked about that this last Sunday when we were going through the book of Galatians about walking uh, the path that God has laid before us. So the first three chapters deal with doctrine. The last three chapters are going to deal with what we will call duties. This is how you have doctrine for what we believe. And then the last three chapters are kind of dedicated to how our lives should change because of what we know about Jesus Christ and how it changes us and what we are called to do because of that belief. But before we move on... um, Odds are, if you are here tonight, on a Wednesday night, the most dedicated of dedicated from Emmanuel, right? Um, It's more than likely that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It's more than likely that uh, you're not going to hear anything that you haven't heard before tonight. Just a heads up for you. You're not going to hear anything that you probably haven't heard before. But these are fundamental truths. I know that we've heard. I know that we probably know. But it's definitely, as we heard this past Sunday, it's a good reminder of how we are to live. And that this walk that we are on, this walk that God has called us to, that Jesus has called us to, it's a slow growth process in our lives. I have to admit that when Landon started talking uh, this past Sunday about the hike that the preteens went on at preteen camp, uh, I went on the hike. And I will be the first to admit to you that uh, when it came to the hard part of the hike, I bowed out and went back to camp, okay? Uh, I went down to the waterfall. It was beautiful. Went down the rope. Didn't fall. It was wonderful. Uh, One of the things that I always do is on hikes is I love hikes. Hikes going down are wonderful. They're great. Love them. No big deal. Hikes going back up, not so great, okay? Uh, Especially for someone of my stature. Um, And so what I do on the way back, and this is I've done this the last few years, is I always, we get down to the waterfall, I look, I take some pictures, get a picture of my son in the waterfall, it's great. And then I say, okay, I'm going to start my journey back. Before all the kids gather, and they want to go up the rope really fast and run up the hill, I'm going to pace myself and go back myself. And so I start going back. I leave early. I stop often. 
I breathe a lot. I pray a lot, mostly that I don't pass out. Um, I enjoy the scenery, but my trip is going to be much slower going back up the hill than it was coming down the hill. And so this past Sunday was really hit home with me. And it kind of tied in. I told Landon after he uh, taught on Sunday, I was like, man, a lot of what you said I'm going to repeat on Wednesday night. He goes, well, great. Maybe it'll beat into their head. They'll get it. So, so this theme of addressing a walk, a path, uh, a road, um, you're either on one or the other. And that's one of the things that Paul continues to uh, try to lay out before us here in the book of Ephesians. But it's also something that if you read through the scriptures, you will see it all through the scriptures. Uh, you think about Psalm 1. talks about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Two different paths. You're either on one or you're on the other. You have Proverbs. And all throughout the Proverbs you see this theme laid out of you have a way of the wise and the way of the foolish. A way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. Uh, in the book of John, in, in the gospel of John. He lays it out before us. There's a path of light and there's a path of dark. You're either on one or you're on the other. Two very specific ways. And this evening we're going to be talking about two ways that you can choose to walk. And you can either choose to walk the Lord's way or you can choose to, to walk the world's way. And that's two paths that's going to be laid out before us here in the text. So here's your big idea for tonight. It says, believers are called to live out their new identity in Christ. We are called to live out our new identity in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse 17. Paul starts off saying, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus... To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ 
forgave you. It's the word of God. Let's pray this evening. God, we thank you for this letter uh, that Paul writes to the Ephesians. And we pray that God is... Um, he meant for these words to be an encouragement to this body. Father, I pray that uh, I know that you meant for it to be an encouragement to us today. So, Father, I pray that we would take your word, that we would apply it to our lives. We would see the truth that you want us to see tonight. Open our hearts to see what you would have us to see. And I pray that you would help us to modify our hearts to a heart that is chasing after you and wants to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a few things that Paul, I believe, wants us to see from this passage tonight. And the first thing is, right off the bat, he wants us to see who we are or who we were apart from Christ. Who we were apart from Christ. And he's going to start unpacking this list to the people of Ephesus. Uh, and if you think about the people in Ephesus of the day, they were mostly Gentiles. And right off the bat, he's going to say, you need to stop living like the Gentiles. You can see the parallel verse in Ephesians chapter 2 where he talks about who they were before Christ. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And so Paul in this passage is going to start unpacking who we used to be before Christ came into our life. And he's going to use a very specific tone. Uh, there's been many times after uh, I preached that Landon has made me go back and listen to myself in order to help myself. Uh, it's the worst thing uh, that uh, you ever have to do. Listening to your own voice, you're like, I sound terrible, right? But Listening to myself has been one of the most, I am my biggest critic, I promise. And so one of the things that I have continued to do throughout my preaching is that when I want to make an important point, I will say, let me just say this. It's one of those phrases that I use. And Paul's kind of kind of used one of those phrases right here. He's going to say, uh, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And if you like to underline in your Bible, you can start underlining here of all the things that we used to be before we met Christ. We're futile in our minds. We're darkened in our understanding. We're alienated because of our ignorance. We have hearts that are hard. We've become calloused. Given ourselves up to every kind of impurity. And when Paul is using this phrase Gentiles, he's not meaning we're Jews and you're Gentiles. What he's talking about is those who are a part of God's family and those who are not a part of God's family. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about Gentile here. He's meaning the world. This is what the world is like. Breaking down, you, know, you see this theme throughout the entire Bible. You either belong to God or you belong to the world. Uh, and here he is simply stating that if you do belong to God, you cannot continue to act like the world. Doesn't make any sense. Johnny Cash <clears throat> wrote a song. Uh, it's called I Walk the Line. It was his very first number one hit. And it is believed that Johnny wrote this song backstage after just being married. He wrote this song. And it was like a pledge of devotion to his wife. And he says this, I admit I'm a fool for you. Since you've been mine, 
I walk the line. And what he's stating is that, okay, this used to be the way I live. Now I've entered into this relationship with you, and it's changed how I live. It changes how I walk. Because I'm a fool for you, I walk the line. Things have changed. It's like that here with the Ephesians. When he was, when we were, uh, when we as believers in Jesus Christ enter into a relationship with Jesus, we are called to walk the line. We are called to live differently than we used to. We are no longer to look like the world. We are to look like a child of God. And the point is very clear in all these explanations. As a new creation in Christ, we are to think differently. We are to act differently. We are to talk differently uh, than the world. Um, It's because of the work of God in our lives that we are able to do that. Now, one thing I want to be very clear about is that I am not saying that we should not be around the world. I'm not saying that you can't be around people who don't know Jesus. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. And if you follow any, if you've read any stories about Jesus whatsoever through the Gospels, you know that he was our great example in how he reached out to sinners. But when people met Jesus, they did not continue in their sin. They chose to walk and follow after him. Or if they did continue to choose to walk after the world, they chose to do that. But for those of who chose to follow Jesus, their lives were different. Their lives were changed. Our goal is to be separated from the sin of the world, even as we live in a world full of unbelievers. And so when Paul's going to switch from who we were to becoming who we are in Christ. So let's continue reading in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that all of you that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self, which belonged to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And just a few verses here, Paul is going to give us an an imagery of three different things. Number one is a school. Paul gives us the subject. You learned Christ. One commentary that I read this week says this was not a formal education. This was a transformational education. In this phrase, you learn Christ, Peter O'Brien says it like this. The phrase to learn a person appears nowhere else in the Bible and to date has not been traced anywhere else in pre-biblical Greek documents. And so Paul here is using this relational language. This relational language. When you become a Christ follower, when you choose to follow Jesus, you aren't just learning about Jesus. You're not just learning facts about Jesus. You're knowing his heart, and you're choosing to follow after him and want to implement your life like him. So you get this imagery of learning Christ. Next, you get this imagery of changing clothes. And as awkward as it would have been for me to put on the burnt orange to go to the football game, it would be just as strange to know Jesus and still act like the world. That's kind of the point I was trying to start with in the the beginning. 
If you say, I belong to Jesus, if you say, I am a Christian, if you say, I am a Christ follower, and you continue to act like the world, something is seriously wrong. And you need to do a heart check. Because here, Paul is, when he's talking about who we are in Christ, we cannot continue to be who we used to be. Like Landon said, just as a reminder, this is a slow process. It's a walk. It's one step after the next. But we cannot remain who we used to be. We are to take off this old and we are to put on this new, this changing of clothes. I read one commentary this week and I didn't write it down. I apologize for that. But it used this imagery of these two men battling one another. It would be like an inner... uh, When I gave my life to Christ, it would be like Corey's sinful desires and Corey's desire to bring honor and glory to God. And they're at war with one another. But it says in this commentary, it says that when you became a follower of Jesus, the the inner being within you, the sinful that wants to do sinful desires, that wants to please the flesh, was dealt a mortal blow was dealt a death blow. And his death is certain. If you're choosing to follow Jesus, it says that person has been mortally wounded. And so we have to choose which one of these sin, which one of these natures that we will continue to follow. We have the sin nature. We have a nature that wants to bring honor and glory to God. And when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, your sinful, fleshly, worldly person has been mortally wounded. John Stott says it like this. It is because we have already put off our old nature and that decisive act of repentance called conversion that we can logically be commanded to put away all these practices which belong to that old rejected life. You know, sometimes we sing on Sunday mornings and we sing the song, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a child of God. And we actively, continually try to take off who we used to be and continue to put on who Jesus Christ has made us to be. Lastly, it says we are a new creation. Verse 23. It says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Being renewed. Here in this passage is uh, in the present tense. Meaning it's an ongoing process that God continues to work inside of us to grow us into the likeness of His Son. We have to continually renew our minds. And it's important that we remind ourselves of that fact. It was important for me as I studied for this passage to remind myself of that fact this week. In this process of growth, yes... God has a part in it. However, we also have a responsibility in our part to set our minds on what is above. Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's something that we have to do. It's action on our part. On our part. We must, we must, We must give attention to our own spiritual growth. If you're not growing, you're dying. As Landon 
said this past Sunday, either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We have to do our part in our spiritual growth process. That means we get in God's word. We read it. That means we spend time with him in prayer. Uh, We talk to him. It means you serve in your church. Wherever there's an opportunity or a need, you serve within the church. That means you share the gospel with people. Maybe a neighbor, maybe someone you work with. It's our job to go and make disciples. And you cannot do that without sharing the gospel with people. Teaching your children. If you're a parent and you have a child in your home. If you have have grandchildren in your home. You need to be teaching your children everything that God has taught you. We have to give attention to our personal growth. And when you come to know Christ, we are new creations. And there should be a growing desire inside of each and every one of us to, one, know God more, to know Jesus more, and to two, make Him known in the world. To know God more and to make Him known. That should be a desire. If you are a Christ follower, a true, genuine Christ follower, you will have those desires in your heart. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on, take off the old self, put on the new self. And then Paul is going to do a little bit of a switch here. And as I share with you what Paul is talking about as he goes through this passage, I could seriously stop and do an entire sermon on every one of these points um, that I'm about to talk about. And this list is by no means an exhaustive list. This is not, uh, this list is not every single proof of a life that is following Jesus. There are a lot more. Um, But these are a few of the behaviors that I think Paul wants to highlight to the church in Ephesus and, of course, highlight to us today. But let's take a look. Evidence of Christ's work in our life. A few points before we get into this, though. Notice that Paul is comparing the old behavior with the new behavior. Who we used to be and who we are now. He wants to make this a point. Uh, Tony Meredith says it like this. Holiness is not just about saying no to sin. It's also about saying yes to God. And Paul will also give us a theological reason, reasoning behind each behavior. He wants us to see the importance between how we act and what we believe and how they go together. They're not separated. They go together. And it's a whole renewing of the mind thing. We do these things for a reason. Ultimately, yes, we do these things because God said so, ultimately. But it's for, and Paul's going to lay out the reasoning. Paul is going to lay out the behavior and why it's important that this behavior happens as we follow Christ. Number one, truthful speech. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor For we are members one of another. This is uh, Paul quoting from Zechariah. Speak truth to one another. Uh, Your speech is important. Um, The words that you speak directly affect the church. Uh, If you're speaking untruthful words about the church, obviously it is harmful to the church. If you're speaking truth words, it strengthens the unity within the church. Uh, Jesus, he makes this point very clear when he's speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8 when he says uh, to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. 
And your will is to do the Father's desire, your Father's desires, not the Father's desires, your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So let's talk, think about lying for a moment. Um, like I said, I could do an entire sermon over this point specifically. You know what a lie is. I don't have to lay that out for you. You know what a lie is. Um, you know when you're lying. And it's not just through your words. It's through your actions. If you're doing something that you know you're not supposed to do. And maybe you don't want your boss or your spouse to know about. That is lying. Maybe you speak words that are just a little bit off. That is lying. Maybe you're not working when you should be working. That is lying. You know. I don't have to uh, beat you over the head and give every single example. But one way that we can know that Jesus is in us is by the truthfulness in our life. Are we people who not only speak truth, but live truth? That's a sign that Jesus is in us. Next, controlled attitudes. Verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Notice here that it does not say, Do not be angry. We get angry. Paul here is quoting from Proverbs 4 that says, Be angry and do not sin. I hope that when we look at the world around us, I've seen plenty in the news this week that get your blood boiling, right? Um, that we see the sin, we see the corruption in the world, we see the injustice that happens day after day, and I hope that it bothers us. But here, Paul is giving us a very specific command that we should be angry and do not sin. We know that Jesus, of course, our great example, when he saw things that were going on in the temple that should not have been going on in the temple, it caused him to be angry. It caused him to react. But one thing that Jesus did not do is he did not sin. I love that. Maybe we need to make whips. And uh, No, I'm just joking. But Jesus responded and did not sin. And so when we think about our controlled attitudes. We need to understand that yes it's okay to feel anger as Christians. But it needs to be held in check. We need to hold our anger in check. Unrighteous anger leads to all sorts of sin. And Paul here uh, gives us three reminders. First of all do not sin. Be angry. Do not sin. Secondly do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know my pastor in Oklahoma he he told this story many times that if him and his wife were ever in a fight, they were ever in an argument, they were both very stubborn-headed. And, and one of the things that they would have to do is they would just have to separate for a little while, just go have some alone time. But they said they would always come back together before they would lay their head down on their pillow and they would reconcile with one another and they would reconcile with the Lord. Do not let your anger, let the sun go down on your anger. That's what he's talking about here. And then... Don't let the sin fester in your life. If it's unchecked, if we're angry all the time, it's amazing how angry people just become more angry. 
They do. You know those people. There's nothing really that just the smallest little thing sets them off. It's because they've allowed anger to fester in their life. And then finally, Paul mentions here that we are not to give the devil an opportunity. One of the reasons why we don't let anger well up in our lives and that we don't let anger fester in our lives is that when we do, we give the devil an opportunity to use us to sin, to do evil. It's very easy. I, the, I can tell you uh, the most times I've ever had to apologize to my children was because of anger. And I react. And when that festers in our lives, the devil has an opportunity to use that. So uh, we're truthful. We control our attitudes. Next, we're generous people. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul reminds believers of the importance of an, uh, an honest day's work. We are created to work. Um, work is a gift from the Lord. And if you don't like work, then you're going to be very disappointed with heaven. Because we are going to work in heaven. If you think you get a cloud and a, a hammock, you're going to be sadly mistaken when you get there. We're going to work in heaven. Uh, for the glory of God, it's going to be amazing. But if you think about Paul, he even spent many years in his life uh, working side jobs so that he would not be a burden on the church. He wanted to work. He wanted to uh, do it himself. He wanted to not be a burden to the church. And so why should we work? So that we may have something to share with anyone in need. This immediately made me think of uh, this past week, Chris uh, put out a plea. There was a very dire need in Kenya. If you don't know, we have a, a, a nourishing the nations team in Kenya. We have pastors that have feeding programs within churches. And there was this family that was in the worst of worst conditions. A mother that's sick. Boys that were skipping school so that they could go find food to feed their mom. Stuffing rice in their pockets just so they could take it home to their mom. And he just put out a plea. And it was amazing the response that he got to be able to provide for this family. To provide a, a new home and food and clothes and the ability for these boys to go back to school. That's why we work. So that God can... Let us, in our abundance, be able to help those in need. Yes, here in Emmanuel. Yes, here in Odessa. Yes, here in Texas. Yes, here in the United States. And yes, around the world. God has called us to be generous people. And we are so blessed to be born where we were at the time that we were. Yes, I know recession. Yes, I know taxes. Yes, all that stuff. You realize we still have more than most of the people in the world. And too much to what people have been given us and trusted too much, we are expected to do much with it. And I pray that we would use it for, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I can't help uh, but think of the transformation that took place in Zacchaeus' life once he met Jesus. Someone who stole, someone who took, someone who was 
lavishly, just rich beyond his imagination. And when he met Jesus, he said, I'm going to pay back more than I ever took from those people. You realize that probably took him a long time to pay that off. The transformation that took place in his life caused him to be a generous person. And it should us uh, as well. Lastly, uh, appropriate speech. E429. I've been told this verse so many times. Here we go. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, when I first memorized this passage, uh, I memorized, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Uh, Here the word is corrupting. Uh, There is another uh, version of the Bible that uses the word foul. If you look at those two verses, Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 13, it actually uses the same word that literally means rotten fruit or rotten fish. Uh, My best friend Adam uh, lived in, oh man, down on the coast uh, when he was in med school. Galveston, yes, that place. And uh, he was home one of the only times he, he got to come home maybe twice a year. And he just so happened to be in Odessa when a hurricane blew through Galveston. And in his apartment, he had just went down to the, the, the port and he bought this huge bag of jumbo shrimp. They were going to be awesome, right? In his freezer. Uh, hurricane hits. He's stuck in Odessa for about a month. Guess what lost electricity? His apartment. Guess what else didn't have electricity? His freezer. And when he goes back to his apartment and he opens the free, he barely cracks the freezer door and he said the smell hits him. He's like, he actually, in trying to move the fridge, some of the uh, juice got on his shoe and he said he had to throw those shoes away because he couldn't wash it out. True story. That is what he says here is what it's like when we have corrupt talk come out of our mouth. You're like rotten fish. It stinks. Corrupt talk does not help anyone. Abusive language, vulgar references, unkind words, gossip, slander. All of those things are unwholesome talk. And if you belong to Jesus, those types of things should not come out of our mouth. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 12 that on the final day we will have to give an account for every careless word that we have spoken. And Paul says in place of this rotten language that we are to use words of encouragement. We are to use words that would build people up rather than tear people down. Augustine uh, read this in one of the commentaries. I made this sign. This was not a picture of that was hanging in his house. This is pretty funny. Whoever speaks evil, this was hung in his, in his dining room. Whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. I wonder what kind of conversations would change at our dining room tables if we hung that in our, in our dining room. Our Christian lives should involve a constant encouragement to people, not a tearing people down. And I would be the first to admit to you that I need improvement in this area in my life. 
And it doesn't matter how good you may think you are or how bad you think we could all do better. At encouraging people, at lifting people up, are our words encouraging to people when they hear them? You know, I could ask you your top five favorite people in the world. And I would be willing to bet that your top five favorite people in the world, they build you up with their words. They make you feel like a better person when you leave than when you got with them. You know people like that. We know people who are nothing but an encouragement. And we love to be around people like that. We are called to be those types of people. And I pray that we are those types of people. And I pray that our words would bring grace to all that hear them. Then Paul adds, verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This warning is tied to verse 29, of course. And it's all the sins that we've talked about. All the sins that we mentioned in this section. All the sins that we did not mention in this section. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. And when we sin, it's a, grieved, it's a grievance to the Holy Spirit. And a simple question I want, to, want you to ask yourself is, Is what I'm about to say going to please the Spirit or grieve the Spirit? And I think that would help us to... Um, maybe bite our tongues a little more often. We'll end with this, our daily response. Our daily response. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. First thing we should do is we can continue to get rid of our former self. We have to continually take off this old person that we used to be. That we're known by our bitterness. We were known by our anger. We were known by all forms of the world. We need to continue to put that person to death. Um, there was a story of a man who owned two dogs. Uh, we'll name these dogs Boomer and Bevo. How's that sound? Stick with the theme this week. And this man uh, that owned these two dogs, these were race dogs. And he would go down every weekend and he would enter these dogs into a race. Sometimes he would bet on Boomer, and Boomer would always win. Sometimes he would bet on Bevo, and when he did, Bevo won. It's pretty amazing. No matter which dog he bet on, that dog would win. And someone finally got up the courage one time to look at him and go, how come you always bet on the dog that wins? And he says, well, I know which dog I'm going to bet on on the weekend. And so that's the dog that I feed during the week. So one dog he was feeding and nourishing and helping him to become strong. And the other dog he was withholding. And so it was weaker and not ready for the race. He knew before the race started which dog would win. He knew before the race started which dog would lose. It's the same with our two natures. We have a sin nature, uh, a nature that wants to do worldly things. And we have a God nature. Uh, one that wants to please and honor God. One that Jesus Christ has given to us. And the question is, which one will you feed? Because whichever one that you choose to nourish, whichever one that you choose to feed, will become stronger. And here Paul is commanding us to put away who we used to be. Stop feeding your sinful desire. Stop doing the things that you used to do and do the things that Christ has called you to. That isn't who you are anymore. Stop 
doing those things. Get rid of your former self. Take off the old. Put on the new. And lastly, to continue to become more like Jesus. Verse 32. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If only the church were to do these things. Forgive as Christ has forgiven us. If Jesus can forgive us, then there is nothing for which we should not forgive someone else for. Are there consequences for sin? Absolutely. Are there consequences when someone has sinned against you? Sure. But we should be very quick and we should be known by our forgiveness to others. Because Christ has forgiven us much. You think about all the things that Jesus has forgiven us for. All the things that we do know about. How about all the list of the things that we don't know that we did? That's the list that really scares me. We must be known by our forgiveness towards others. That's who we are in Christ. Uh, Ultimately, this passage, I'll end with this. It reminds me of the story of Rahab. Think about Rahab and Joshua. Uh, She was a foreigner. Her people were an enemy of God's people. She was a prostitute. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, extended an invitation to Rahab to become a part of the family of God. To become one of his people. So she left, uh, her and her family left everyone that they had ever known. Left the gods that they used to worship. Left the lifestyle that they had ever only ever known, and she became a part of God's people. And if you read, um, continue to read about Rahab, you will see that God used her in the lineage of Jesus. Rahab took off who she formerly was. She put on who God, who Christ had created her to be, and God used her in an amazing way. And God wants to do the same thing with us. We have that same charge. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We are to take off who we used to be. We are to put on Christ and be what he's called us to be in this world. And so we'll end by quoting the great theologian Johnny Cash. Since you've been mine, I walk the line. And I hope we walk worthy of walking for Christ. So let's pray this evening as we end.